Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We imagine an historical connection between the peoples of the biblical story and the peoples living in the modern world because our premise in 2021 is our identity. Who are you? To what group do you belong? What are your beliefs? On whose side are you? The moment you mistakenly answer these invalid questions, almost always using the pronoun we, even though you are a single individual, inevitably you refer to a modern institution or group. It has to be modern, because you are talking about yourself, and you live now, today, in the present hour. It is a present-day thing with a clearly defined identity, membership, platform, and borders. When you refer to it, you sound like a politician, like the princes and sons of men in the Bible in whom there is no salvation. Then you tint your glasses with your present-day identity and use it to lead Bible study. Then... You are confused when everyone, including you, sees the words on the page, but no one can hear them. On that day, it will be too late for lens wipes. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 to 19. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 395 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We mentioned last week that it is a mistake, indeed it is folly, to draw conclusions about any group of people, contemporary Jews, contemporary Christians, your church, contemporary Muslims, any group of people, religious or otherwise, and the characters or communities in the story of the Bible. We assume, because of fundamentalism and illiteracy, that when Scripture talks about the people of Judea, which through its Hebrew cognate is connected to the word Jew, we assume that they are the same, quote, people as modern Jews whether we're referring to Jews who lived in what historians call the diaspora in Europe, which presumes a historicity which is questionable, or we are referring to Jews who live in the modern Middle East, we make all kinds of really questionable leaps when we say those are, quote, the same people 
as the characters in this story. And then we make assumptions about the religion of the characters in this story and the modern religion of Judaism. And when we do that, we start to trip over ourselves and misunderstand and hear incorrectly when Scripture is dealing with the religion of the Pharisees, the religion of the temple cult in Palestine, in first century Rome, in late antiquity, in the story of the New Testament. People flippantly make connections between Christianity and Judaism in our modern times without understanding the context. Well, you know, Jesus was a good practicing Jew, which is probably the case. The only thing is he got in huge fights with other good practicing Jews. So he was a Jew in certain ways and not a Jew in other ways, or he considered other people not Jews, you know, by the same token. Were the Pharisees good practicing Jews? Because if Pharisees were good practicing Jews and Jesus was a good practicing Jew, what were they arguing about? We take what we understand to be a Jew in the modern American context or modern global context, and then we try to superimpose that onto what Jesus was. And this is a big problem because the basis of modern Judaism, like the Talmud, which is based on the Mishnah, I mean, the Mishnah wasn't even written down until 100 years after the New Testament was written down. And the Talmud didn't come around for several hundred years later than that. And those are the basis for modern rabbinic Judaism. So if we say that Jesus was a good Jew, we can't measure him according to what we understand a good practicing Jew is, or even what a good practicing Jew of 700 when the Talmud came out was written down. We get very confused. So what I really want people to think about, and I used to teach Jewish cultural history, we have to understand what is happening in the Bible when it talks about what a Jew is and what a good practicing Jew means, because Jesus is obviously trying to correct things that are normal among Jews, which Jesus happens to think are wrong based on Scripture and what he's reading in Scripture. If we want to follow what we think Jesus was, already problematic, obviously, but I won't go into that now, we have to look at the way that he is understanding Scripture and the way that he is subservient to Scripture and the way that everything refers back to Scripture, no matter what one thinks Scripture is the reference, and this is what Jesus is teaching. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? I mentioned at the beginning of today's program that you cannot try to unpack this question by referring to the practices of Judaism, which is what everybody does in Bible study. And they invite their local colleague, the rabbi, to explain the difference between Shabbat 
and Passover and to talk about Jewish customs and the similarities between Jewish worship and Christian worship. And then they use this phrase, which pertains not to scripture, but to imperialism, Judeo-Christianity, which becomes the validation of a premise that causes suffering in other lands. And then they are comforted in knowing that we're all on the same page and we all basically agree, but they have no clue what Matthew is talking about in verse 17. Because at the time that this verse was committed to paper (laughs) by the scribe, the way that Jews worshipped in the story was completely different from what we understand as Judaism in the modern world. The way that Passover and Shabbat are celebrated today is very different than what was happening in the ancient world because there's been a lot of development around it. Passover, we call the entire week Passover. But in this passage, we can actually tell that they're separate. They said the first day of unleavened bread. So that's what they're calling the week, is the unleavened bread. And then the disciples say, where do you want to eat the Passover? So obviously Passover here isn't referring to the week, because you can't eat a week. It's referring either to the meal as a whole, where do you want to eat Thanksgiving, or it can be referring to the Passover lamb itself. We don't know. It's not clear here. But we do know it's not talking about the week of unleavened bread. And in the Old Testament, you can see how there are these two different ideas that come together. And why do they come together? Because it's the first of the year. Now, you and I were talking earlier, Father, the first of the year is the spring festival. It's not January 1st. The beginning of the year is happening in spring. Now, I know that's confusing because those of you who know anything about Jewish culture, you know that Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year, the beginning of the year, that Jewish festival is in fall. (laughs) So that coincides with the beginning of the liturgical year that the Orthodox Christians have on September 1st. It's always very close to Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the year for the Jewish calendar. So it's confusing because you have two different beginnings of the year in Judaism because of historical forces. Okay. All I know is that on Pascha, I'm up all night chanting. That's the basic point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But what do I know? (laughs) Exactly. And the way that the modern Passover is celebrated is in a Jewish home, and it's very strict. The prayers that you say, the food that you eat, the order of the food that you eat, the glasses of wine that you drink at certain portions of the liturgy that happens, there's a whole liturgy built around that. For Shabbat, there's no liturgy around the meal. There's prayers you say at the beginning of Shabbat, there's prayers you say at the end of Shabbat, but in between there you'd eat. There's nothing special about what you eat during that. There's some traditions about the kinds of bread you eat, that sort of thing, but that's different. We have a difference between Passover, we have unleavened bread, but the traditions that we know around these, these whole liturgies, these whole prayers, we don't know how well developed these prayers are at this time. We don't have Jewish sources from this time about how it was celebrated. The traditions that we have are much later than this. 
So don't impose what you see at a Jewish Passover in New Jersey onto what Jesus' disciples are trying to prepare for Jesus. You can't make that assumption. I explained it in a long way so you understand that it's really complicated what was happening and the way that things are now and the way that they developed. The feast of unleavened bread that takes over this whole week, they don't want Jesus to be crucified during that. There's some tension around that because it's a holy week, but Jesus is going to eat the Passover, which is a holy meal that he's going to eat with his disciples. That's what we know from the text. That's what we know from the New Testament. Don't bring in, don't import more information from what you saw happen in Los Angeles. And the reason, Rich, that I brought in this insidious expression, Judeo-Christian, is because this desire to bring in our contemporary context stems from a desire to impose identity on the text. Scripture is not about religion or creating a religion or constituting religion, because religion is the business of identity. That's what government is all about. That's why there is no separation between church and state, and that's why in the absence of traditional religion, politics have become the new religious war in the United States. Because you can't control a population without controlling identity. It's important to explain these things openly so that everyone understands why we're in crisis in this country. It's all about the battle over identity. But for those who are scriptural, there is no identity. There's just the words from God, period. And once you understand this, you don't have to figure out if it's Christian, Judeo-Christian, or whatever. If you're concerned with figuring out if it's Judeo-Christian as opposed to Muslim, or pitting Judeo-Christian civilization against Buddhist civilization, you are playing the game of the state. You are playing the game of nations. You are playing the game of the princes and rulers and sons of men in whom we hear every Sunday, there is no salvation, there is no victory in your fleshly identity. You're still placing your trust in something that isn't going to work. And then you build theologies on that nonsense. You start to try to explain how, oh, don't you see that there's this connection because of this synchronicity. You see how the liturgies are the same and how our liturgy is based on the cultic rituals of Exodus, which actually are making fun of us because we can't fulfill the commandments of God. We sanctify God's ironic mockery of us into something liturgical. We say that it's building something sacred when it's actually putting us down in Leviticus. And we miss the point, because we're trying to build an identity. It just has to be said, Richard, we are about to bear witness to the execution of the Son of Man by those who are interested in building city and tribe, as we heard last week. So we can't knowingly then turn and start talking about how wonderful it is that we have this interesting connection between Christianity and Judaism, because Scripture is criticizing both. 
Remember that the ismos in Galatians is a problem because we're not talking about the people. We are talking about the words. I love what Father Paul said on his most recent program, Richard, about the dabarim. It's not the extracted abstraction of a word that enables you to then talk about the weather. It is the words on the page, which are an empirical fact you have to deal with. And nowhere, anywhere in verse 17 does it say anything about 2021. That's what we're trying to say. And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. It's a beautiful verse. I heard a sermon <laughs> online where someone was trying to explain on the basis of the Gospel of Matthew, no less, which was very disheartening, that the New Testament doesn't really consider Jesus a teacher. <laughs> you know, you have, to, you have to laugh when people say things like that. You just have to laugh. What I do in Bible study when people say absurd things is just pull out the text and ask them to read it and explain it to me. And that's it. That's all you can do. But here, very clearly, <laughs> oh, the vascolos, oh, the vascolos. I think it's really important that you mention this, Father, because for some reason the King James translates this as the master, which is curious that we had in the previous chapter. Now, maybe King James was pushing things a little bit to identify Jesus with this master that we have, this Kyrios we have in the previous chapter, but I don't think it needs pushing, and I don't think the text merits it. I think the text says the Daskulos, the teacher says. The other thing I find strangely contrasting with the previous pericope is Jesus went to Bethany, to the house of Simon the leper. Here, Jesus says, go to the city to so-and-so. I mean, he doesn't actually say man. He says, tondina. So that just means such-and-such such, or so-and-so. He literally tells his disciples, go to the city and talk to so-and-so. Do they know who so-and-so is? I don't know. I can't tell who so-and-so is. But he doesn't even bother to name them. Go to the city, go to so-and-so, find a place. That's it. Go find a place in the city. He doesn't say Jerusalem. Well, remember, Judas is a man of the city. <laughs> Interestingly enough, correct. So go find one of Judas's people and set it up because the opportunity is right around the corner. The keros is near. So he knows that he is going to be sold as a lamb for the slaughter. Just thinking back to the 30 pieces of silver, I appreciate the connection you're drawing here. Yes, so he's telling his disciples they need to have a Passover meal, and the Passover meal has to take place in a house. Jesus has consistently eschewed living in a house. So the disciples are in a quandary. Well, on the one hand, the teacher needs to eat the Passover. On the other hand, the teacher doesn't like living in houses. We were just guests in Simon the leper's house 
but we need to prepare the meal for the teacher. What do we do? And Jesus says, he concedes. Yeah, okay, we need a house. Go talk to so-and-so and just say, I'm ready. <laughs> that's like, that's the instruction. Go tell so-and-so I'm ready. And then we'll see what happens. He really puts no plan in place. Jesus is forcing his disciples to simply trust that what he said is enough. We don't need another word. We don't need more. We will write more words as we understand what the teaching is, and these disciples will interpret Jesus' words to go and do the next thing. Okay, I guess this is so-and-so? Well, let's ask him. That's an interpretation, right? They got to ask somebody. And they ask a guy, they get the place, and it's fine. But what Jesus does is he's teaching that his word is enough. You're not going to have him around to interrogate, to clarify, to explain. You just have the word that's left with you for you to perpetuate. You must trust in his word. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It's a bit like a kid standing on a diving board who's afraid to jump, doesn't know what's going to happen if they jump. They have to make a decision to trust their swimming instructor or not. And if the instructor says jump and you listen, you jump and you see what happens. Maybe you'll drown. Maybe you won't. Maybe there's no water in the pool. Maybe there is. Who knows what's going to happen? You just have to make a decision of whether to go or not. And they submitted. And it's no small thing in my view, again, that this technical term, keros, appeared in verse 18. Because clearly the opportunity, the keros, at this moment, the opportune time that is near is for the martyrdom of Jesus to bear witness to his father's teaching, to the words, the dabarim of his father. He's going to bear witness to that teaching. And the disciples now are being directed to help prepare for that martyrdom. Now, whether or not they will fully trust that directive when the chips are obviously down, like before their eyes, where it's very clear that Jesus is going to be humiliated and executed, and that shame and that risk and that fear and that danger may also come upon them, how they will then conduct themselves, that's an open question that remains to be seen, as we know. But at least at this point, they're willing to trust and do what he asks. In the last pericope, the last meal that he ate, the city was named and the person who was hosting the meal was named. Bethany and Simon the leper. The name of the owner of the house, the name of the city are not relevant. Even though this is the Passover that Jesus eats, it's Jesus that gives it the relevance. Whereas in the previous one, the fact that he's a leper and the fact that it's in the house of the poor gives relevance. But here, a person with a house in a city is not relevant. Jesus is the one around which everything is focused for this meal. And the disciples did as they were asked and they prepared it. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature.
Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.